I'd like to encourage you to open either an app or a Bible to John 16. It's on page 903 in your pew Bible. This week and next week, we're finishing up a series on John chapters 13 through 17. And uh, it's been very fun for me because I love these passages, what John Stott used to call the heart of the Bible. So I'm going to read to you starting at verse 25 to the end of the chapter. And then we'll highlight some things as we go through. This is Jesus speaking. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and that you do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and I will leave you alone. Then I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill this place now, that each of us would sense your presence, that we would know that you understand, that you love, that that this would be especially encouraging to those who are suffering from doubts or discouragement or have that tendency. So thank you for your word. And we just ask that you just work in our lives in every way. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This may be a little bit uh, TMI. I sleep on the side of the bed farthest away from the bathroom, and we don't have a nightlight in the bedroom. I don't know, some of you are figuring out where this is going. So for years when I would wake up in the middle of the night, I would just put my hands out in front of me, and I would kind of navigate by dead reckoning. I, it's about 10 feet to the end of the bed and then the end of the host desk after that. And then I 90 degrees and that way. The problem is if, you get, if you're off on the 90 degrees... You can run into the wall or stub your toe or so forth, and um, that's painful. And, but sometimes the problem was not my dead reckoning. Sometimes the problem was that in the dark, I forgot what I had seen from the light. I had forgotten that I had temporarily put a pile of books or a box where it stuck out just enough into my personal, my normal path, and it would catch my little toe. I didn't want to wake Janice up, so I would just kind of stuff the sound. Um, and you can probably think of several life lessons that I should have should have learned, like <laughs> pathway clear, dummy. 
or but what I did actually learn was to use my cell phone, just you know, just to screen light. And so it's now been years since I uh, stubbed my little toe in the middle of the night. But neither of those are the lesson for today. The life lesson that ties in with today's message is this. Never forget in the dark what you saw in the light. Never forget in the dark what you saw in the light. Look at verse 29. I hope you still have that open. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Really? Think of everything they had heard and seen over the past few years. They were with Jesus when he stopped the funeral procession and raised the dead son of a widow, the only son, back to life. They were there when a desperate father came and pleaded with him and he cast a demon out of the young son. They were there when Lazarus rose from the dead out of the grave after more than a day. They were there when the little girl, three of them at least, was raised from the dead. But only now they believe. Even though Jesus at times taught cryptically in figures of speech, deliberately obscure, they were there when Jesus healed thousands of people over three years with all kinds of fevers and sicknesses, blind people, crippled people. They were there when he cast out demons. They were there when thousands followed Jesus from place to place. They were there when tens of thousands at the beginning of this week before the Last Supper, tens of thousands cheered as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And they were there twice when he fed thousands of people with a few fish and loaves of bread. They were there when he walked on water. They were there when he calmed the storm. Peter, James, and John were on a mountaintop when Jesus, when he was, his face, his appearance was changed. It was dazzling white. And they heard a voice from heaven, God the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Peter already said that this is, that he was Jesus, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. But is it only now that the rest of them are going to believe? Look at what Jesus immediately says in verse 31. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Jesus implies that if you really believed in me, you wouldn't abandon me. But they will. And Peter will deny Jesus three times. We saw that at the end of chapter 13 where it said, Jesus predicted they would deny him three times. But the book of Luke, the other, another gospel, gives us more information where Luke says, quoting Jesus, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows that Satan wants Peter. And Jesus is not going to let Satan have him. He has prayed for him. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, did you know that Jesus prayed for you that night? It's going to be next week when we look at chapter 17. It's the second most famous prayer of Jesus in the Bible. And we'll, we'll walk through that. But he prayed for you that night. The Bible also says that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father constantly praying for you and pleading for you. So if you put your faith in Jesus and become his follower, Jesus is not going to let Satan have you, no matter how badly Satan wants you. And he's just like the apostles who were eyewitnesses of all these things over three years. You will
will probably experience doubt at times. Is that bad? Jesus can handle your scrutiny. He can handle your questions. And never forget in the dark what you saw in the light. Jesus promised earlier in John's gospel in chapter 10, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. See, Jesus knows that Peter's faith is going to waver. He knows that uh, the disciples will abandon him, but he also knows that they're going to turn again that this wavering is only temporary. Now, I'm willing to bet that every follower of Jesus in this room has seen their faith waver. Now, maybe for you it was just for a brief time, or maybe it was kind of a long desert period in which you were just really kind of doubting everything. Now, at the end of chapter... At the end of chapter 16, Jesus is predicting two things both of which apply to us, that the disciples will doubt and abandon him temporarily and that we will not have it easy in life. Because in the world, we'll have tribulations. Now, as was mentioned previously in this series, this can be discouraging. This can uh, lead us to despair. But a second look helps us realize, which kind of God would you rather have? Would you rather have a God who just tells you everything's going to be fine when it isn't? Or would you rather have a God who actually tells you like it is? See, what people often don't realize is that the devil loves to promise you a really rosy life, a bowl of cherries for your life, and then when that doesn't happen, you get really disappointed. Instead, Jesus says, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I'll be there with you. He says, actually, that he will never leave you that he will give you all of the supernatural aid and help you need. He's not going to let the devil snatch you out of his hands. This is a principle that in theology we call the preservation of the saints. It came out of the Reformation, although it was there all along and other people also believe it, but it's one of the truths emphasized during the Reformation. This is 2017. It's the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, of when we say that the Reformation started. Um, and this fall... We're going to look at and renew our faith by looking at the incredible, powerful biblical principles that were emphasized in the Reformation. Amazing stuff that went on. So we'll start that in a couple of weeks. Jesus predicted that life would not be easy. So your troubles are not surprising to him. But he actually promises that even the worst evil that someone can do to you, he will redeem it. He will turn it around and use it for good, if you will, cooperate with him. So he says there in chapter, in verse 31, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Jesus predicted their doubt and their scattering but it would only be temporary. We want to look at five things during the rest of today's message and put them on screen. Why the apostles doubted, why it was temporary, what their faith was like after they believed again, practical things that we can do when we doubt, and how to develop
God's church. So the first one, why did the apostles doubt and abandon or deny Jesus? This is, this is the Last Supper and then on from the Last Supper to Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, Jesus is going to pray fervently and the disciples are all going to do what? Fall asleep. And then Judas is going to bring a crowd and he's going to betray Jesus with what? A kiss. And one of the disciples is going to cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, and Jesus is going to say, stop. And at that point, they're going to scatter. Even though some follow at a distance. Peter's taken, and he's taken before the high priest. He's taken before Pilate. The people, now they're, they're asking for him to be crucified. And he's beaten and stripped, and he's mocked, and he's spit up, and he's scourged. And then he's crucified. And what we don't realize, because our whole concept of this has changed down through the centuries, is that this was utterly humiliating. And no one in that day could even imagine that a hero, that a conqueror, that the Messiah, that a king, much, much less God, could be humiliated. So why do the disciples doubt? Because everything they've learned in life is saying it's over. We put our faith in the wrong thing. Jesus cannot possibly be who we thought he was. Because if he was, if he were, he would not have been crucified. So they, they go into hiding. They're afraid they'll be next. There are hundreds of thousands of visitors, pilgrims in Jerusalem. Not too hard to hide, but they're hiding because they don't know if they're next. it's over, that they were wrong about Jesus, that they had misplaced their faith. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in the dark, kind of forgetting what you saw in the light? Maybe you have a child whose life is threatened, they're in the hospital, it's sick. Or they've made bad, bad choices and they have some kind of life-threatening addiction suicidal. Maybe the person you were sure God wanted you to marry betrayed you. You lost your job for no fault of your own. You have cancer. Someone that you love has cancer or has died or you're just depressed and discouraged. You're out of gas and you're wondering where is the abundant life Jesus promised. What about Houston? like you were wrong about Jesus because your situation was impossible. And if you were right about Jesus, then he would have intervened. He would have prevented that pain. He would have brought you relief. Well, the disciples at this point, they are completely convinced that it is over. There is absolutely no way Jesus can be the Messiah. And remember that they they don't the Holy Spirit often kept them from remembering certain things that Jesus said. Later, they'll remember that Jesus said he would rise from the dead. So they're hiding. And then on Sunday, some of the women will just come running, out of breath, with their tomb is empty, to the women. As John and Peter run to see the tomb is indeed empty, Jesus appears to the women. He appears to Peter. He appears to the, the gang that night, except Thomas is missing. During the next 40 days, 
disappears over and over. To Thomas and his stop doubting. To 500 people at one point and much later to the Apostle Paul. At one point he prepares fish for the disciples by the Sea of Galilee and has an in-depth conversation with Peter, restoring him, forgiving him, reinstating him because he denied him three times. At the end of the 40-day period, Jesus ascends into heaven and about 10 days later it's Pentecost when the disciples are praying and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they are filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit and they are filled with power. Peter preaches, thousands of people become followers of Jesus. They go around healing people and doing and casting out demons and they're persecuted and they're beaten and they're killed but they don't die anymore. John, John's brother James is beheaded Peter's on his way to being beheaded, and an angel rescues him. Jesus told them there would be trouble, but no longer when they suffer will they doubt. It seems that from then on, their faith is strong. Their doubt was temporary because they'd seen Jesus alive with their own eyes, and because the Holy Spirit now lives in them and empowers them, they can feel God's presence. So my question for you today is, what have you seen and what have you experienced? Can you feel God's presence in you? I've prayed, I've seen people healed right then or healed over time. I've been healed immediately and been healed over time. I'm convinced that there were several times when my life was saved. I can sense God's forgiveness and peace love his presence. When I study the Bible, it's like God is confirming that it's true to me. Now, is this subjective? Sure. It might not be at all helpful to you, but it's extremely helpful to me. Could someone explain these experiences away, not to my satisfaction, but how about you? What have you seen? What have you experienced? Have you seen God answer your prayers in obvious ways? Have you sensed God's presence, His love, His peace, His forgiveness in convincing ways? Does God nudge you? Does He confirm the truth to you? What's your experience? Sometimes people doubt Jesus. They may wonder if He's really God. Sometimes people doubt themselves. Do I really believe? Do I have true biblical faith? What are some practical ways that we, what we, some practical things that we can do when we have these two kinds of doubts? Well, the first again is never forget in the dark what you saw in the light. Over and over, especially in the Old Testament, the Israelites are told to remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. Now, I, I hope, for example, that you've studied the historical evidence for the resurrection. A good little book to read is uh, The Case for the Resurrection, The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel. His movie is out now. I haven't seen it yet. I hear it's good, The Case for Christ. So if you'd rather watch a movie than read, that's supposed to be good as well. But the disciples were totally convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead because they saw him. And they then went on, most of them, to martyr. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were fearless and they turned the world upside down because they knew that Jesus could resurrect from the dead. Do you know that history? Or 
And can someone just come along and throw cold water on what you know about the resurrection and the facts behind it and make it very difficult for you to know what you don't know? What about your prayer life? Do you have a record, or at least in your mind, or maybe even written down, of the times that God has answered your prayers in obvious ways? Or the times when you, you know you felt his presence? Or that he rescued you or guided you? Do you, do you, do you have those firmly in your mind to remember them? These are things that you want to remember when you doubt. Is Jesus really the Son of God? What about when you don't doubt Jesus, but you doubt yourself? You doubt whether or not you actually have faith. At that time, the go-to book, I would say, is the book of 1 John, which is um, actually a uh, letter. And in 1 John, there you can make a case for more, but there are at least four characteristics or marks of the true Christian, of whether or not you have actual faith. And we'll just go over them quickly. But admittedly, if you're in the doldrums, if you're in kind of a spiritual desert, you may not be able to see these things in your life. So that's another reason why it's very crucial that you're in a small group, that you are with people who can know you well enough that when it does get difficult for you to even perceive yourself, they can speak into your life and say, yeah, yeah, I know this about you. John actually says in this letter that he writes it so you can know that you have eternal life, so that you can not doubt when your heart accuses you. And that's what happens in a case like this. So four things, and he, re- and he repeats these different times during his letter. The first is sensing the Holy Spirit in yourself. One of the verses is, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. The second is believing and confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. It's just what do you actually believe in your head about Jesus? What do you think? And he, he writes, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. The third one we talked about a few weeks ago is obedience or not continuing on in sin, repenting, having godly grief, and and turning back. And John writes, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And then the fourth one is love for fellow followers of Jesus. He says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Do you have those things in your life? Do you have what First John would say? He says, look at these things. I want you to see them so that you know you're not just making up that you have faith. You know that you have the real thing. What can we do now to develop a more robust faith that doubts less and less as time goes on? And what did the disciples do? Well, the first thing they did was they saw Jesus resurrected. They knew that he had resurrected. So that's part of it. We need to be convinced of that. And then they experienced God's power by stepping out in faith and seeing God act. Well, how can we do that today? In recent months, I've been um, trying to go to the gym and work out twice a week, whether I want to or not, and I'm really happy. Um, And this last week, we were on vacation, and so I missed it. And at my age, I deteriorate rapidly. And the same, the same thing is 
speak spiritually. I, I, I pray in the morning when I wake up. I pray at night. I do smaller prayers throughout the day. But I also love to hike at Garland Park by myself, kind of praying, talking to Jesus, and rememorizing scriptures. But I missed that for the past couple of weeks. And that then, my, my relationship with God deteriorates. Our faith must be used or it will deteriorate. If you get so distracted by the rest of life, then you will find your faith smaller and weaker. So you need to pray. And you need to pray for people to be healed or for other kinds of miracles, to get jobs, various things like that. But you can see God intervening. He won't do it every single time. We talked about that two weeks ago. But you should see God work powerfully. And you need to follow. When God nudges you and you think, oh, I need to go talk to that person, you need to go and do it or help that person and see God work and prove himself over and over. You need to give generously so that you're not like the rest of our culture, but you're trusting God to provide. You need to give generously of your time to serve. You need to keep a record of when your prayers are answered, either in your head or on paper or somewhere. And when you have a really cool story, please let us make a video of it so we can encourage the rest of us. Now, there are two areas that I want to ask you to step out in faith on. First is what Luke was saying. Invite someone to Alpha. This is the most proven process for helping people understand about Jesus in the world for places like ours. You may not realize it, but where we live is one of the most resistant areas in the world to the gospel. This is a very, very helpful tool. Please think and pray and invite at least one person, maybe three or four. And there's a really nice email that they've put together that you can send. You can, it's a great use of social media. Uh, but this is especially the personal invitation is important. So invite someone to Alpha. It starts in two weeks. And then the second thing that would be a real place to step out in faith, if you like children, if you don't like children, don't listen to this. If you like children, we have something that's fun and also necessary. We need more people to minister to our children. We all need help raising our kids. And we need you to step in and help raise our kids. We need a team on Sunday mornings. We need a team for the Alpha, the sixth Sunday night. We need a team for two Monday mornings a month with mops, mothers appreciation, to come and just have some relief and know that we love them. It's a great way to love and it's also a lot of fun. Because people travel so much now and are just so busy, we will work with your schedule. But that also means we need more than we need more people because people are gone all the time. And so we figure that out, but we just we really need you to help. So please think and pray about that. There's a table in the patio you can sign up. Never forget in the dark what you saw in the light. This is my deluxe copy of Satan's Project. It's got the uh, copies in it of the wood engravings that they stamp onto it, and it's the old English. But they, they sell this in all kinds of different um, versions with more modern English and whatever. I highly recommend that you read Pilgrim's Progress or reread Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, it's an allegory. The main character is called Christian. He's on the, he's gone through the narrow gate and is on the, the hard path to the celestial city. Um, and he has different traveling companions, and he meets people along the way whom you will recognize, because there are a lot of the people in our culture today who give a lot of very sad or even silly responses. Uh, his, 
burden of sin falls off at the cross. He receives gifts and encouragement from the Holy Spirit. He narrowly escapes the dragon who is Satan in the valley of the shadow of death. He's imprisoned and his partner, Faithful, is killed at Vanity Fair. They've been told that they're supposed to stay on the path. And the path has a fence to keep them on it. But it's hard, just like Jesus said. It's going to be hard. And so they come to a place where the path is getting increasingly hard, and there are stairs going up the fence and down the other side. It's called a stile. And they look, and the path is just really hard. And over here, it looks like it just parallels the path. So they decide to go over the stairs and on the other side. And they're walking, and initially, it, it just parallels the path they were going to go, and then it starts diverting from that. And then the weather turns bad, and it's rainy and muddy, and they're dark, and they can't see, and they're exhausted, and they're lost. They are captured by a giant who's named Giant Gethsemane. And he locks them and chains in the dungeon of his castle, which is called Doubting Castle. And there, they're locked in with that. And he beats them mercilessly until his wife gets the upturn of hands. And he urges them to kill themselves and their country. And John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wants us to know that there are times when you when you doubt. Actually, Christian, before he even becomes a follower of Jesus, he was doubting and in despair in the slew of despond. And after he becomes a follower of Jesus, he doubts and is in despair when the dragon Satan is almost killing him. And at Vanity Fair, when he is imprisoned and his friend Faithful is killed, he is doubting. And he's doubting here in the, the dungeon, and he doubts when he's about to die as he goes through the River Jordan to symbolize his death. Friends, most followers of Jesus have doubts at times. And Jesus can handle that. But when he's in the dungeon in Doubting Castle, again, it's an allegory, a metaphor, he remembers God's promises. Is it the promise that God will be with him, give him power, that he will destroy? It doesn't say. But the promise is the key, and it opens all the locks, and they get back on the path Doubts are a part of following Jesus. But if we will develop our faith muscles by stepping out in faith daily, by praying for others, sharing with them about Jesus, serving generously, giving generously, spending time with God, most of us will find that our faith in Jesus Christ becomes stronger. And our doubts 